Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around, drinking tasty beverages, and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that do not agree, but are lovingly delivered and accepted from one another. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your writers today are Chaz Brenchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 144, Interview with E.C. Ambrose. Welcome, Elaine. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. It is so wonderful to have you. You, I, I feel like somehow I might have met you in one dark and smoky lying around Penzik. You're in the SCA, right? <laughs> uh, I have been, not for a little while, but it is entirely possible that we met on uh, on one, one such occasion. <laughs> I just, when I see your pictures and your author pages on all of the different nom de plumes that you have out there, I'm like, I know that face somehow. So... <laughs> Especially if you were part of the late night dance cabal, because when I was uh, Skadian, I was very much into the dancing and, of course, making clothes. Do you remember a flute player kind of sitting there quietly by herself (laughs) making, because that would have been me with the dance cabal hanging out near the drummers? I see. Excellent. So if you were at the Darbuka, then there's every chance that we met. Then that could be it. (laughs) But we are here to talk not so much about your your exotic and amazing dancing with which you lure in the world, but your amazing writing. I have been loving Drake Master. Oh, thanks. So tell everybody about Drake Master, your new historic fantasy novel coming out. I think it's coming out next month from Guardbridge. Tell us all about it. Right. This novel is an epic historical fantasy novel set in China during the Mongol invasion. Uh, That's either the Southern Song Dynasty or the beginning of the Yuan Dynasty, depending on whose side of the conflict you are reading. I I was going to ask which Mongol invasion, so thank you. (laughs) Clarity. (laughs) So initially the Mongols were invited to help the Chinese to uh, force out the Jurchen, the previous invaders. And the Mongols kind of liked it and decided to stay, much to the dismay of the then emperors uh, who ended up moving south to become the Southern Song Dynasty and abandoning the capital at Kaifeng. It features a, a deadly race across medieval China to locate a clockwork doomsday device. And the device is based on Su Song's astronomical clock, which was actually built in Kaifeng in around 1090 uh, in the Common Era. And then my book is set in 1257. So for video gamers, this is after the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Is that right? There you go. You just just need to know how to place it, right? Right. Well, I I was going to say, we have people that love everything. And, you know, whether they've read historical Chinese history or not, or have played a video game to completion, or love some of the amazing, like, little big soldiers. There's some fun movies out there. So it's good to have an idea of where in the history of China it is, because what a long and fascinating history. This is true. When I first conceived of the idea that I wanted to write into this era, it was, oh gosh, you know, the, China is a vast nation, both in terms of the, the scale of the place itself, and then also it has this incredibly deep scope of history. Discovering Kaifeng early on in my research allowed me to really zero in on a very particular place and then discovering furthermore that Kaifeng had rebelled against the Mongols gave me a very interesting sort of conflict setup to begin the, the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why is it so set so specifically in 1257? 
Manke is the Khan. He was one of Genghis Khan's um, children, one of his sons. 1257 is the year that that Kaifeng sort of tried to fight back after the Mongols had already swept through and claimed that territory. Perhaps the leadership in Kaifeng thought, oh, they've turned their attention somewhere else. They won't notice so much if we kill the governor and you know, sort of kick out the, uh, the top echelon. <laughs> Didn't quite work that way. Didn't not, did not work that way, no. And I really loved, because I briefly was trying to take, well, not briefly, Future Mew is also working at taking Romance of the Three Kingdoms and making it into an interesting 5e setting, which meant I have to look at all the magic. So when I was reading mm. your pages, I'm like, I love you a little, and we're going to talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the idea of the geomancy as opposed to, which is different from the calligraphic possible magic of of Confucianism and some of the others, the different magic systems are fascinating. And then there's the herbalism magic. There's so much neat magic and shamanism and 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 through this history that we don't mm -hmm. get enough of in modern books. Yeah, for me, part of the fun of writing historical fantasy specifically is creating the fantasy elements around the actual history, around what people believed, what they worked with, and kind of what they were trying to do or their understandings of the world at that time and in that place. So in this case, yes, geomancy and the idea that that the stars have this extraordinary influence on the earth, on the people who live here and could perhaps be tapped into, that, that we might be able to use that energy for good or for ill. And anything that involves an astrolabe is automatically cool by me because of the, <laughs> of the boons and bottles, imps and astrolabes that was that uh, short story Tanith Lee wrote. So, Oh, that's going back. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, one of my COVID hobbies has been uh, buying wooden kits to make astronomical devices. So I have an astrolabe on my bulletin board over here, and there's an armillary sphere, or there's four armillary spheres now. And this marvelous little kit that my brother-in-law actually found from Korea, which I think he brought back when he was uh, stationed in Korea a while back, that is a hemicyclium. It's a, a half-sphere sun uh, sundial. That's the word I'm looking for. I was just pondering how the armillary spheres are similar to the orreries and the some of the other, I mean, we remember from Dark Crystal, Agra's alignments mm -hmm. with the really cool statues. So there's, there, it has always been the cool idea of early scientific devices and adding a little bit of magic to them, I think is fabulous. I actually have a, a talk that I've done a couple of times now at conventions that's a slideshow of uh, early astronomical observatories. Um, and sort of taking you up through the history of some of those devices, basically up to the telescope. But there were all kinds of interesting things going on before we ever got as far as making lenses. I used to have an idea that said you could take, for for those unaware out there, our mapping of the world came because we could at latitude early. You know, the early Egyptians were into latitude. Chinese absolutely had latitude. Longitude wasn't until we had very accurate clocks. So mm -hmm. it adds that extra little bit of as the science changes, the magic can change. And that's, I mean, I, I, that's why I geek out over medieval history and fantasy. If you don't have to make too much up, do you? I mean, it's right there. It really is. Yeah, I think the best fantasies are the ones that are very strongly based in, in the reality. Um, so many of the details are, are right. There is a, a poet who has written about 
art and Irish poetica Marianne Moore, uh, in which she references imaginary gardens with real toads in them. <laughs> and this is one of my touchstones for fantasy, because if, if the toads are real, people will believe in the garden. So the more details you can draw on that are from the real world that give it that texture and weight, then when you add your flights of fantasy, when you have extraordinary things happen in those very specific times and places, those things too become believable. The imaginary garden builds around those real toads. I was going to say the devil's in the details. No, that's <laughs> not it. It lends verisimilitude to an otherwise bold and unconvincing narrative. Mm. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just love that sentence. <laughs> no, and it's, I think there's a, un, un, I love the work that Alma, Alma Alexander does for ancient China. And I love the ones that you were doing because this is such a rich history that Westerners aren't necessarily taught in school. I mean, there's a students of history are kind of unaware that how many wars in Europe happened because, hey, somebody discovered a new alum mine and somebody came with their military and say, I'll have that. That's money. That's dye. That's clothing. You know, people wanted the Korean Peninsula because it has so many metals and Koreans were making repeating crossbows when Western Europeans were still trying to master the longbow and different technology. It's easy to assume that what you know of history is history all over the world and you mm -hmm. unveil a different kind of history and a different activity and a different culture. And that's, I think people can meet the world through fantasy in that way. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by sort of if you pick one year from the Middle Ages and then you look at what's happening, you know, sort of across the world in different kinds of places and you think, oh, the, the great cathedrals of Europe are being built at the same time that Mesa Verde is being built in the American Southwest. And by that time, you know, the Mongols have already started sweeping down into China uh, and the Chinese civilization, the empire has been around for hundreds of years. It's just fascinating to think of that kind of snapshot horizontally instead of vertically in a single place. But wow, all of these extraordinary things going on in different places and times. And yeah, there is a lot of it that, that people in the Western world really don't know about. You know, I'm trying to think back to what I might have learned about China in school. And the answer is, very, very little, especially about any kind of you know, Chinese technology or, or Chinese accomplishments prior to sort of, oh, look, there's communists and this is a concern for us. But before that, you know, not so interesting. Well, and, and the Mongols had such an interesting influence on everybody from Russian culture to the north to Chinese in the south, just because, well, they got around. You know, they the, certainly did. <laughs> Mongols kind of had a time in here that they ran and controlled all the way up through Russia. So there's there's such a common culture that we don't get a, we don't get a lot of in American schools. And Chad, you'll have Chaz, you'll have to tell us if that's you know what in British schools we got for the Far East as well. Oh, honey, um, <laughs> if if my mother hadn't grown up in the Far East, I would know nothing because I mean I. We were taught, oh, my, my history classes were about Victorian corn laws and things like that. You know, it was, there was so much exciting, vivid history out there that we just did not get at all in school. And there's also a parallel that I found when I started studying Chinese history and Russian history and, you know, history after just getting out of what we learned in European history of interesting parallels in everything from where technology caught on, you know, how the stirrups changed the world from Alexander on and who got them next. And 
And the making of mechanical pieces was very large based on what were the natural resources around. Like they say, well, down here you have the aboriginals in Australia. No, they didn't have big metal deposits, but they did amazing things with crafting how water flows through the land on an enormous scale. And mm -hmm. s similarly to American Indians that were very much the right. Sorry, Mr. Beaver, we're going to grow up, blow up your dams here, but to let things flow here, how do we keep there from massive catastrophe from happening that the more myopic view, you know, I've got a, I've got a spade, so I'm going to dig here kind of closes it down with tools. And it's, it's the parallels are astounding. Yeah, it's interesting as our technology increases and our ability to examine geography using non-invasive means like LIDAR and things like this, that the closer we look, the more we discover that people have been manipulating their environments for thousands, mm -hmm. tens of thousands, a hundred thousand years. People in the jungles of South America who deliberately built ways to kind of channel the water and maintain plots of land that were more appropriate for growing certain kinds of trees. And people look at it and they, oh, it's just, it's just wilderness. It's just the jungle. Well, it wasn't. To those people, they were very closely aware of what was possible and what was available to them. And they used all of those resources to create a better world for themselves and their children. And nowadays, we don't often pay attention to that kind of evidence, or we haven't been able to pay attention to it until very recently, to be able to examine a landscape and go, oh, the, these features that we think of as natural are, in fact, man-made and manipulated by people that have so often been dismissed as being not that intelligent or not that motivated. And they certainly have been all the way through throughout time and place. It is absolutely true that when we look at you know things too much through, I own the land, therefore I don't want you changing my land, even though you and your people have passed down how to shepherd land for hundreds of years. You know, we're looking at forest mm -hmm. fires across North America. And a lot of that is because, yeah, there's nobody clearing out. There's nobody, we, or Teddy Roosevelt said in America, how we are going to have containment of forest fires because he was a big conservationist. Has that fucked us up a little bit <laughs> in certain ways? <laughs> because, because some of the things that could have been small fires going through clearing out, creating fire breaks are now enormous fires because there's no fire breaks. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, on this one, this is clearly a first novel. You have some other series. You have The Tales of Blades End, Singer's Legacy. You've written under multiple names. Are we looking at a trilogy here too? Or tell me your <laughs> dreams. Well, uh, so far I, mean, I haven't deliberately written a trilogy, although I do have a couple of uh, sets of books that so far come in threes. This could certainly be expanded at the moment. We'll stand alone and we will see where this goes. My Dark Apostle series, which is the dark historical fantasy about medieval surgery, that's five books now complete for your binge reading pleasure. So I'm there for you. <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we have some friend, my friend Andrea McCulloch in the SCA, we call her Bones on the Ship, uh, lives for all <laughs> things. Her and Rowan up in Canada are both very big into the, the history of medicine, so wonderful. Oh, those are some fascinating and, and somewhat disgusting rabbit holes to be diving into, let me tell you. Aren't they? Um, more Western-based or Eastern-based? When, when did they discover the circulation of the blood in China? Sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm thinking back because 
in some ways, Chinese understanding of medicine and the body was more advanced than the equivalent period in Europe, but also their treatment methods were sort of similarly based on localized understandings that weren't necessarily anatomically or physiologically appropriate. They were in particular big fans of mercury, which, <laughs> uh, as we know, is not such a good idea. And, and that certainly carried over into the European medicine for a long time as yeah. well. Yeah, and the, in, in Europe, the medicine was very strongly based on Galen's understanding of the human body, which he was a Russian or sorry, Roman surgeon around the first century AD. And his anatomy book that he produced, he wasn't actually dissecting people. He was basing the anatomy on pigs and apes. And especially for women, there are some notable differences between pigs and, and women, even more noticeable, we would think, from the outside. So he was often just wrong. But for a thousand years, everybody in Europe insisted that if you were cutting open a patient and they looked different on the inside than Galen's diagram based on a pig, that it was the person, it was their individual anatomy that was mistaken. They were sort of a, a, a mutation or there was something wrong with them rather than that Galen could be wrong. So they very much accepted the authority of that position. And it took a very long time before we were able to shake that off and say, no, actually, actually. That made that made the Frankenstein Chronicles, which just came out and had Sean Bean, who lives to the end, sort of. And <laughs> really, I, I really loved it because I really loved it because we had the interesting conflict that they had of people saying, OK, it was now all right to do medical experimentation, but only on corpses. And then having some guy say, well, really, how many corpses do you need? <laughs> how, how fresh? <laughs> And that can create its own set of stories and did with, with that TV series. But it was based on the whole thing of every time something in history changed about what you could do with a body or how you could look at it. I mean, you had Michelangelo and Leonardo saying, can we, can we see under the skin? I want to see how the muscles look. And, mm -hmm. but we have to do that in unofficial back ways. So yeah, history of science. It's fun. <laughs> So what's your process when you start down? I mean, and the, did the others start out as trilogies? When did you, or you, you say you think this is a standalone novel. At what point do you start to realize that I just have so much to say? Well, I say that I've never deliberately written a trilogy. Usually for me, sequels and series arise out of the conflicts and complications. For The Singer's Legacy, it's a family saga, essentially where the solutions in one book, the moment where the characters in that book think, yay, we have solved our problems, everything's gonna be great. Those solutions cause problems for their children in the next generation. Uh, so the next book is sort of the children coming to grips with the things that their parents did that they were the right choice at the time, but now they have repercussions you know, 15, 20 years down the line. So something like that could certainly become a lengthy series and, and go on from there because there are always children and always parents and causing problems for each other in both directions, I think. Oh my God, that makes the meme so real. Well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And similarly, the kinds of conflicts that I was looking at in, in The Dark Apostle, part of it is the character growth. So you know, the character begins in a certain somewhat naive position in relation to the world with a very particular narrow view based on where he lives, who he is, uh, the kinds of things that he faces every day. 
And as he rises in power, he is able to see and understand more and more problems and to come to realize that those may be things that will have an impact on him or things that he could potentially have an impact on. But it's part of that sort of Spider-Man mentality you know, with, with great power comes great responsibility. Is there a point at which your great power obligates you to try to take on more problems or to confront bigger conflicts than you otherwise would? And it's certainly one of the areas that I'm interested in exploring is, you know, does your greater knowledge kind of mean that you now have that sense of obligation? Uh, and what are the consequences of that? We have talked about this in a couple previous episodes, but I really love the whole point of it is, I love that we now expect character growth and development through series. This was this was why I never really warmed to the Wheel of Time series of Robert Jordan of here. We're all from a small little town. We're kind of narrow-minded, etc. Now we've been traveling and seeing the world for the past year and a half, and nobody has changed at all. Mm -hmm. And I, so I, I love to hear you say that, that yes, there's authors, you know, pointing out that people should change with circumstances that either you have in the in the microcosm when Chaz is writing his his crater school books the girls grow up every semester and learn to be better human beings and you know fight martians and survive <laughs> their their challenges and then we get a new trop of girls because it's a new term that way that's episodic in an idea but i love when you have characters that are going to travel the world and ah you've now been enslaved and wander off and you have new points of view yeah, you're going to change. And let's acknowledge that more in fantasy. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the things that happen over the course of the book will have that kind of impact on you. A couple of weeks ago, I was at Boscone and one of the panels I was on had to do with survival. And theoretically, it was about different kinds of survival, but we ended up talking a lot about warfare and not only how does it take to physically survive, but what happens emotionally and mentally when you have survived. One of the things that drives me bonkers about a lot of fantasy and, you know, a lot of epic fantasy has these big battle scenes or there's the, you know, the young knight who heroically takes on some great challenge. And then they don't show the aftermath of that. What does it feel like when you have killed someone for the first time? What does it feel like to have survived the battlefield when so many people have not? It's not always a big victory or the big victory isn't always clean, pure, and delightful. There are always mixed feelings. There are always repercussions that will be carried forward with those characters into their further adventures. I think it's been hinted at here and there in some of, for instance, movies I've watched where you have characters that have been like Civil War characters. It's like, I just kind of want to go home and farm. I've never thought about how really nice farming could be. And wouldn't it be great if our biggest problem is keeping that old well working rather than staying alive for the next period and maybe not killing anybody for a while. And that's a very profound observation. Yeah, I think there's the, um, you know, there, there are people who have that reaction where they want to withdraw and, and go home. And I think one of the works that did look at this more profoundly was actually the Lord of the Rings at the end. And when Frodo says, we saved the Shire, Sam, but not for me. There is that sense of the impact that everything that's happened has had on that character. And that there are some people who will be able to, to go home and to farm and to you know grow their gardens and plant their mallorn trees and be happy. But Frodo is now too changed to go home again. 
Or he recognized he just needed a long cruise on the Elven Princess cruise lines and <laughs> maybe some time on a tropical island, just, you know, hanging out and sipping a rum drink. I respect that. That that could help. It's a good start. Yeah. So when you're going at this, I understand you are right now looking at, um, have you finished? I mean, you must have finished it if it's coming out next month. So Tell us a little bit about the work of getting it out to the line. What it, what was it like for you? You finished the book. What is the end process? Work, tell us a little bit about working with your publisher and, <laughs> you know, finding the cover. I love your cover art, by the way. I don't know if it's final, but it's beautiful. So, um, I believe it is final or nearly final in the version that you have uh, have seen. There's sort of an interesting roundabout process for that. So. I mentioned, I think, before we started the official interview that my editor, David Stokes at Guardbridge, is also very much of a Mongolia buff, which was fantastic. He was kind of nosing around about this book from the first moment he heard about it. And I didn't realize that he was that interested in Mongolia until sometime later. So I think it's wonderful that it's coming out with someone who who really cares about the material uh, as well as the, the words. So he's been just marvelous to work with. But we had agreed that it would be great if we had sort of a little giveaway version of the book that has the first three chapters in it that we could give away on both sides of the Atlantic. And he would hand it out at Fantasy, I think it was Fantasy Con, and I would be going to the World Fantasy Convention. So I have a friend who is an artist and graphic designer and had always said, you know, if you if you need anything, let me know. So at the time, we didn't have a cover yet for the book, but we wanted to put out this little sampler. So I said, well, you know, I have this friend who would be willing to do a little project for me and he could probably come up with something pretty cool. So he did come up with something pretty cool and it has it has an astrolabe on it because, of course, astrolabes and oh, yeah. you know, kind of <laughs> magic and and things in the you know, Mongolian characters in the center and stuff. And David said, okay, that looks pretty good. Let's go with that for the sample. So we did that. And David had still been considering, you know, how he wanted the cover to look and how it would fit in with the other books that Guardbridge puts out. And then he kind of circled back around and said, so your friend, would he be willing to do, you know, the cover kind of for reals for the book? And I said, well, I think he would be, but let me put you in touch. And so they they worked it out between the two of them what it would be like. And I'm certainly very excited about the result. But it was kind of funny because there was a moment in there where my friend's wife said, oh, you know, has have you shown Elaine the draft yet? And he kind of paused and he said, well, Elaine's not the customer. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's fine. That's that's true. You know, obviously, it's, it's everyone true. You're, is... you're a reviewer, but not the customer. It's true. Right. Everyone is invested in wanting the cover to be fabulous. But in this case, you know, I'm I'm sort of part of the process, not the actual uh, purchaser thereof. So. So if we have people listening who are thinking about writing historical fantasy, what kind of advice would you give a uh, young writer? So first, it helps to find an area, you know, time and place that you are fascinated by because you're going to need to wallow in it for a lengthy period of time. <laughs> and also because that may give you kind of a, a leg up in terms of seeing the kinds of things that you're interested in or the areas that you want to learn more about. Next, be open to using lots of different sources of information. It's usually easy now to find stuff on the web, which is great, only as we know, stuff on the web is not necessarily the most accurate information. There are certainly resources there like JSTOR and some of the other academic reference sources that you can find out uh, some good information. Part of the fun for me has been looking for non-academic sources or for not non-literary sources. 
So where can I go to see the actual stuff that people made and used? How do I learn about the material culture uh, of the place that will help me understand what life really felt like? What kind of materials were they surrounded by? What were the textures of their world? And I think that helps to bring a lot of that everyday richness to you know, the environment of a fantasy. That's, um, that's really interesting, because I mean, when, I, when I was writing my historical Chinese <laughs> um, mm-hmm. fantasy, it was the language that I needed. I, I spent six years studying mm. Mandarin because I couldn't, I couldn't approach the book without understanding how the Chinese thought, and I couldn't understand that without understanding how the language worked. But you, you turn to artifacts. Yeah, and it's interesting the way that those things come together then. So one of the artifacts that I found was a feng shui compass. Mm. Highly detailed, beautiful one that I picked up. And of course, it's got lots and lots of words on it, which I then could not read. So Mm. I I went from the artifact to the language, to looking at what the meanings of those things were. My daughter was taking Mandarin at the time, so she was a resource. Her teacher was a resource for some of it. And then I you know, I sort of used her as the excuse to get more books about <laughs> understanding Mandarin and, and things so that I could look at those characters and feel like I had some greater grasp of them. And one of the things both for me and for that hypothetical young writer who wants to get into historical writing is maintaining your respect of the other culture, knowing that you know, I could learn a lot of interesting things about Chinese language and culture uh, And also, I'm not going to know it all. I'm just not ever going to. So I'm sure that there are things in the book that people will go, hey, that's not quite, you know, but hopefully none of them are hurtful or so far wrong and so far off from the reality that people will hurl the book against the wall and curse (laughs) my name in in other languages. Well, and I know that you write archaeological thrillers as E. Chris Ambrose, but I have to say the opening of Drake Master, which hopefully will get everybody go on to do it, is so creepy cool. (laughs) I mean, that was just like, like, I have to, you have to read it all just reading the opening of, I don't even want to spoil it. I'm going to make them go buy it because, wow, it's so awesome. Pre-ordering um, is awesome. <laughs> it is certainly good to hear about that that opening. And of course, the the first bizarre thing that you encounter in there is real. There are temples that are like I this. entirely and, believe it. Yeah. And that just makes it even more <laughs> awesome. Well, we will put links to your story and the pre-order when we get it. And the other topics that we have covered on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. Elaine, this was fantastic, and I am so excited to read all the rest of the book now, and I hope everybody else is too. Thank you so much, Jeannie and Chaz. It was great to join you. Wonderful to have you. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is done by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs. Jazz does great t-shirts and the other swag you can pick up on our website. This one is dedicated, as many of them are right now, to our friends out in Ukraine who are having a really rough time of it. We love you. And hey, thanks for listening out there.